Jan Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jan Price Show, all about movies. You are listening to The Jam Price Show, all about movies, and today my guest is Liam Leguiu, and he's the director of a brand new documentary entitled An Unknown Compelling Force. Welcome to the show, Liam. Hi, thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to have you. I have been reading about this um, in, in several different um, several different articles. I've been reading about this story. So when um, when Robin and Adriana reached out to me about interviewing you and found out that you had done a documentary on it, I jumped on it immediately because I think this story is just so incredibly fascinating. So our audience knows what this documentary is about. Why don't you give us a brief synopsis? Yeah, sure. So the story um, the, is about the Dyatlov Pass incident, and that's, uh, I guess, Russia's biggest mystery. And it's actually about the story of uh, nine hikers who died deep in the Ural Mountains back in 1959. And it was under some very unusual and mysterious circumstances how their bodies were eventually found and the injuries that they had. And uh, yeah, really, this mystery has been going on for you know sixty years now, and nobody really knows exactly what happened. But the issue is there are now so many different theories about this case that I wanted to go out there and to find out, you know, what's real, what isn't real, and try and make you know some sort of sense of this kind of crazy story. Yeah. So, how did you get drawn into it? I mean, how did I? It's. It is interesting why there's such um, amount of interest in this story 62 years later. I'm, I'm fascinated with just that aspect of it. So why do you think there's a new, renewed interest in this particular story? And then why did you get involved with doing it, doing a documentary about it? Right. Well, I think the interest has been there for many years, actually. I don't think it's ever gone away. Um, it's just it's starting to filter out as, you know, more and more podcasts and YouTube videos are kind of like following on what they think they've heard about the story. And so that's why it's been there. I think it's fair to say in Russia, this is kind of the equivalent to kind of the JFK conspiracy theories around that. It's, it's equally as big a story in Russia as it is for, for us in the U.S., um, so yeah, so the story has always been there. I think in recent years, there's been some new evidence recently, actually, I say evidence, I, I, let me step back on that. There's been a new story recently to say that it might well have been an avalanche. Um, now I don't dispute the science behind this potential avalanche. I mean, the science is solid, but it doesn't add up to all the different reasons around this case that suggest to me and a lot of other people that actually an avalanche wasn't the case. So, uh, so yeah, it, it's still a complicated story. There definitely has been some recent media on it, but I think that it's for anyone who thinks, okay, this case has been solved. Well, I, I, I beg to differ actually. <laughs> yes, because you really uh, delve into this. You do a deep dive into the mystery of this. And um, I'm amazing that you were able to get um, all of this archival um, photos of the um, the aftermath of finding the bodies of, of these um, hikers. And that was kind of unusual. And, um, and also people that had been involved in the search um, all those years ago. And so talk about how did you how did you locate these people and how did you get access on the photos? Because I would think that those were something that they wouldn't want to release that easily. Yeah, well, it's interesting, actually. Um, 
in terms of the photos, the majority of the photos were actually um, available in the public domain, mainly because after the fall of the Soviet Union, um, this case, it, it was kind of like a held secret. People didn't really know what was happening. And then after the fall of the Soviet Union, these pictures were released into the public domain. So they are actually out there. They were a bit tricky to find all of them and kind of like collate them. And, you know, I had other people get in touch with me with other photos. So, you know, I found more and some new stuff in there too. But they were out there. But the difficult thing was trying to make sort of um, head or tail of what was going on in these pictures because some of them were quite confusing. Who was who and what was related to what? So, you know, it took a long time to do that. And I think that... You know, I reached out to uh, the head of the Dyatlov Foundation, a chap called Yuri Kontesvich in Russia, um, you know, and I'd seen a uh, kind of not very well put together documentary, might I say, about the project that had some, you know, wild claims that it was some weird wild beast, a yeti um, that attacked them. And, and I was like, this is, you know, incredible and, and unfortunate that they would kind of jump to these kind of ridiculous theories without real research. So, you know, I reached out to the Dyatlov Foundation and I said, you know, what do you think about this type of film and, and story and how can I find out more information? And honestly, off the back of that, a conversation started and I was checking my emails the other day. Within four weeks or less than four weeks of the Dyatlov Foundation in Russia, just to sat own I was booked and I was embarking on this documentary project. You know what, you're, um, for some reason, you froze up a little bit in that last segment. So if you want to repeat that little bit again that you were just talking about, the the research part, yes. Sure, yeah. So so during my research, I reached out to um, a chap called uh, Yuri Kontesevich at the Dyatlov Foundation in Russia. And um, during that, I I reached out to them and they said, look, hey, you know, if you want to do something, feel free to come over and and look into it. And... um, so yeah, the within four weeks of me emailing them, really out of my own interest, it became a documentary project. And within four weeks, I was flying to Russia to go and start this documentary. That's amazing, though. That's just amazing that you would just sort of drop everything and go to go do this. <laughs> and then also go to the actual place where they all perished. Um, in What time of year was it that you went? Did you go at the same time of year they had gone or a different time of year? Yeah, we were literally just a couple of weeks away from the date that they went equivalent um, at that time of year. So we were in in sort of March. Well, we're we're in March time, so about four weeks out. Um, The reason why I I had to run and go and do it was because I wanted to go in those conditions. You know, it was important Mm -hmm. for me to experience what they experienced because that makes that has some bearing on the evidence around the case. Um, You know, was it the weather conditions? You know, was it practical to move in these conditions? So I needed to go there at the same time they did. Um, So to to leave it any later, it would have been too late because we were actually taking snowmobiles over frozen rivers to get there. Um, so we wouldn't have been able to do that in the summer months. And it's actually some ways difficult to get there in the summer months. So, yes, it was kind of like now or never before the, the snow start to melt. And so I saw the opportunity and I just said, well, you know, I said to my wife, hey, I've found this crazy story. I think I'm going to Russia. And she said, okay, if, if you think this is a good idea. All right, honey, I'll support you however you want to be supported. <laughs> she, she, she knows my antics, yeah. 
<laughs> yes, I'm sure she does by this point in time. So yeah, four weeks is not a lot of time. So you were able to pull together a film crew and people who were brave enough <laughs> to follow you on this incredible journey. I mean, it really is an incredible journey. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, yeah, it was rushed. And luckily I had a couple of, you know, I have good friends in the industry that I could sort of call on to come out with me. They were available and down for an adventure. So that was great. Um, and yeah, you know, I did a lot of the work when I got there. It was really hard to communicate via email with the people who didn't speak any English mm-hmm. anyway. So really it was kind of land in Russia and figure this thing out. You know, it was like investigative journalism, just land there, boots on the ground, start asking questions, start getting around, finding the people. Um, and it opened up, you know, lots of bits of information that, you know, you hear some of it on some of the older stories and podcasts here and there, but it's the details that are missing and the things that aren't quite correct that you start to find and it fleshes out the whole story and i think going there was really important part of the film you know i could have done it two ways i perhaps could have all done it from the u.s and not and just done it from photographs and information but i guess it's like it would be like making a a rock documentary rock music documentary without ever hearing the music you know you you had to experience it i think that was important for me to experience the journey and to show the audience what it was like for those hikers. And, and it does. It adds so much more to the film that you, because you did that, that you're retracing their, their, their steps, their path, where they went. Um, so, yeah, there's lots of theories. And you cover, I think, just about all of them. I don't know how many more there might be. So do you want to get into a little bit of the detail of each one of those theories? And, and, uh, and, and then we'll get into what you really thought, too, even though you don't. Go ahead. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. You know, there are lots of big theories. Um, you know, there, there was, I mentioned before, there was this documentary made that sort of suggested there was a, a Russian Yeti on it. Of course, you know, ridiculous, but, but there is a reason why that story came about. And, you know, my story explains that away. You know, it, it was a, an honest piece of um, comedy that happened in the, in the hiker's journey we talk about in the film so it's good to kind of like tick off these things and i wanted to do that because i didn't want people to be saying well you know hey it was this or that you know i wanted to try and tick off some of those ideas um you know one of the big issues around this thing is there were apparently lights seen in the sky around the time so you know there's a lot of people that want to talk about ufos around mm-hmm. this mm-hmm. um you know I, it's I find some explanations for as to why there may have been lights in the sky at the time. Um, and there's some very plausible and rational explanations for that, that, that are of this world and, and not some other world. So again, it was good to kind of look into that and just kind of tick off the plausible reasons for this. Um, one thing I found interesting, and this was always difficult for me to get my head around was there were traces of radiation found on the hikers. And um, now that was, I had some ideas of what was real and what wasn't, but this was confusing to me because the radiation was found in the, in the uh, reports, the case file reports going into the story. Again, I found, um, which is fairly new, some evidence as to why there may have been natural reasons for why one or two of the hikers may, may have come in contact with radiation, which doesn't really have an effect on this case. It's just one of those crazy red herrings that sometimes happens. So again, that's in the film. So it was great for me to take, that one was new for me and it was great for me to tick that off and say, okay, right, now that's another piece of the jigsaw puzzle figured out. Um, so yeah, there, there are many, many other, other theories. Um, 
I I come down on something a bit more natural, but at the same time uh, more worrisome. I think the the real the real the strongest piece of evidence in this case was the autopsy reports, mm-hmm. and so I looked heavily at the autopsy reports. I had experts in Russia look at it. I had experts here in the U.S. Uh, a retired former Marin County coroner, a wonderful chap uh, called Ken Holmes. Um, he looked at it and went through this autopsy reports as well, and you know we found across the board there was signs that other people were involved in this situation. So that to me is, um, you know, is, is where my story is, is taking this journey. Um, who and to why, for what reason, you know, I go into some of this detail in the film, but, um, but yeah, I think that it's easy to get carried away with all these other ideas, but you have to hang on to what is real. What do you actually know? And what isn't just, you know, speculation, and what we do know is the autopsy reports. So I used that as my compass throughout this journey to kind of steer me in the right direction, I believe. So what did the autopsy reports, um, what was it about? What, what do you think, that, what's their theory of the cause of death for all of these um, hikers? Right. Well, the, the autopsy reports actually said, the official autopsy reports from 1959 um, actually said that they listed a number of different injuries across the bodies. Mm-hmm. Now, um, at least two of the hikers had absolutely massive um, injuries to their chests. One girl, in fact, her chest fractures across her ribs were so bad, it actually punctured her heart. Um, now, all of the experts I spoke to said those people wouldn't have been able to walk. Mm-hmm. Um, now, they were found, the, these bodies of these people were found more than a, or around a mile away from the tent. Now, I walked those dis- distance in that condition. It would have taken us about an hour. We were fit and healthy, you know. Mm-hmm. If these people had had these injuries who couldn't have moved at all, they didn't walk for an hour in these snowy conditions. So, mm-hmm. how did they get from the tent to this other location? What why did they leave the tent? Why were they then found somewhere else with these terrible injuries? Um, there's also one interesting element that one of the chaps, um, Rustam, he was found sort of midway point between the two, but he was in the direction looking like he was going back to the tent. So he'd already gone a mile away and then was returning to the tent. And then he has a fracture on his skull, which is a massive fracture to the temple of the skull, which kind of shows that you wouldn't do that by falling over. You would fall on the front of your face. You'd hurt your wrists. There's lots of, you'd fallen and hit a stone or something. He didn't. He had an impact to the side of his head, which is highly unusual and so removed from the other situations. Mm-hmm. So it just goes to show they were moving around. It, it didn't all happen in one location. And uh, it certainly wasn't a small slab avalanche that landed on the tent, which is one of the sort of current theories going around right now. So, Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, no, just to finish, really. So it's, it's, it's still unusual. And trying to kind of place that out and make sense of it is, is kind of what's important. Well, it, it, the, the theory of an avalanche just doesn't, for me, just watching it didn't doesn't work because of all the things you're saying. You know, the things that they, I mean, some of them had their eyes taken out, right? You know, they had they were they were mutilated, and I don't know if an avalanche would have done that. Mm. Yeah. So uh, one of the a number of the hikers were missing their eyeballs when they mm-hmm. were found. That's now so it looks it looks like that was actually attributed to a running, flowing, melting snow waters that because those hikers were found a couple of months after the well after the event so it's kind of there was facial um 
it was taken away by running water. That kind of makes sense to me. And I think the experts agreed that would make sense. But one of the girls was also missing her tongue. Now, that in itself is really unusual. That's, uh, that's a large muscle. It's not soft tissue like the eyeballs. That doesn't just waste away um, in running water. So, yeah, there's something odd about that. I mean, it's unfortunately, in the autopsy report at the time, it doesn't explain how the tongue was missing in terms of a cut mark or degradation. Mm. It, it literally just says the tongue is missing. So that unfortunately is kind of left open to a little bit of interpretation. Do you think that um, the Russian government was trying to cover up really what had happened to them? That something more nefarious? I mean, to me, it seems like something more nefarious happened to them than, as I said, an avalanche. Just because of unless the avalanche would take them that far away. But as you say, the one of the hikers was going back and then he has a blow to the head. Would that have happened with an avalanche unless there was something in the avalanche? Perhaps that came down and hit him in the head. I don't know. But it, it's almost like a different time, you know, since he started to walk back. So, Yeah, it would seem that he was, um, that was sometime after the initial event so there was another event that affected him and another event that affected those found in the ravine lower down area and then there was the initial event that happened at the tent so we're talking about in that case at least three different events where there was different injuries or different moments so you know this isn't one avalanche this isn't one event there was a series of things going on here it's so bizarre so i'll go back to that question um do you think the russian government tried to cover some of this up back then because well, it was still communist a communist country at that point abs- absolutely i think that there was a lot of um certainly a lot of the russian people i spoke to at the Dyatlov foundation believe there's a strong russian or soviet government um cover-up and involvement here mm-hmm. there's a strong belief from their point point that there was some sort of weapons test or military test gone wrong that affected them and then they then they covered up this crime to try and make it look like some kind of accident you know i think one of the journalists i spoke to in this subject um she sums it up brilliantly she she doesn't believe that would be the case she doesn't believe it was the russian government who actively covered this up um because she said we have a saying in in russia that if there's no body there's no case and that's very true. If the mili- the Soviet government of the time, if they wanted to hide people away, they never would have. They never would have been found again. And it's just, it, it just, it, you know, the, the more it's like you went down a rabbit hole with this movie. <laughs> Did you feel that way at times? You were going down a rabbit hole. Oh, completely, completely. And and every now and again, you think, oh, I think I've I've got an idea on this. This makes sense. And then another piece of the puzzle doesn't add up, and you have to go back to the beginning beginning again and rethink it through. And I think that was my thing was to not get too caught in the weeds. It's very mm-hmm. easy to go off course, and I think a lot of people over the years have done that. You know, they find one gem of, of a piece of evidence, and then they try and shoehorn everything else around that one moment. I tried not to do that. I kept coming back to the autopsy reports we know are authentic what makes sense to those and 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 place it all around from there so so yeah for me and coming back to the soviet um government thing for me I, you know i don't think that makes a lot of sense that they were involved in the actual incident was there an element of cover up that's possible I, there's a there's a large amount of inconsistency um in the 
any witness statements of when the tent was found, when the tent, uh, when the bodies were found, and how they were found. Um, there was uh, there are local groups of people that lived in the area, and I remember we're hundreds of kilometers into the subpolar region of, of you know Siberia, and um, not many people live out there. It's incredibly difficult conditions to live in, but there are the indigenous people that live there, mm-hmm. the Mansi and Hanti peoples. Um, so they were there, and they were initially looked at as to whether or not they could have been involved in the case. Uh, and then they were quite quickly uh, disregarded as, as had nothing to do with it. Now, you know, I think there's possibility that those peoples could still be looked into in this case. But what I want to be careful of is is not to say that a whole group of people did this. It wasn't a cultural involvement. I'm just saying individuals from any group. There could have been individuals from a Soviet government or there could have been individuals from uh, the Mantiohanti people. Individuals can be involved in, in, in you know, horrible subjects. It doesn't mean it was the whole group of people. So I want to kind of make that clear. I'm not right. sort of pointing at, at the whole indigenous people in that area. It, what's so? I mean, there's so many things to this, but the fact that they were that they, you know, it was the middle apparently in the middle of the night, and they all left without their clothing and shoes in this sub-zero, multiple, you know, really sub way sub-zero weather, and looked like they were fleeing from something. Obviously, and that's the whole. That's what the great mystery is, because I don't think if it had been an avalanche, that it would have had that same kind of feel to it. Do you think? I mean, and when you were doing it, did you? I mean, I know you don't really come to a conclusion necessarily on this, but do you yeah. think it could possibly have really been an avalanche? No, I don't believe it could have been an avalanche. Uh, you know, one of one of the reasons why I wanted to go there again in in those conditions was that. Why didn't they just go back to the tent? If there was a small slab avalanche, they ran away, you know, in, in fear. But you'd pretty quickly realize, okay, nothing else is coming. Let's run back to the tent and get our stuff. You, you know, you do not spend long in that type of weather before you feel the pain of, of, of the coldness. And so you want to get your boots on. You want to get your winter jackets on. Um, they didn't do that. So something was scaring them a lot more than the fact that they were about to, you know, lose initially their their fingertips and toes and then their lives if they didn't get back. Mm-hmm. Something was stopping them from doing that. Now, a small slab avalanche alone wouldn't have done that. So that for me is why I don't believe um, that an avalanche was involved. Something else was stopping them. Um, so that's kind of what I get into. And, you know, as to whether or not I, I do or don't, don't make a con- conclusion – not quite, but I think if you read between the lines of where my f- uh, film goes, I think, you know, I take us in a direction and I leave, you know, you, the audience, to right. decide what you feel about that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that's what's so great, because it is up to, you know, the viewer. And that's so wonderful that you let us kind of come to our own conclusion about what really happened. What was, uh, when you have a brief little bit, about a minute or so, um, before, because I also want to f- tell people where they can see this film, but um, how did you get a hold of their diaries how did that's kind of interesting where were the diaries that you got a hold of yeah the diaries were actually released back to the families and all of that stuff including um, artifacts from the tent were all given to the Diatlov foundation so a kind of a center for this story and uh, that was run by like i said before a chap yuri kontesevich he um, kindly took me in, welcomed me to this, showed me the photo, showed, the, showed me the photo originals, the negatives. Um, I got to touch and feel that stuff. I got to, you know, handle the stuff that was used by those actual hikers. Wow. And that was kind of an important wow. moment for me. 
me. Yeah, I can imagine. I can imagine. Because it adds so much to the story and the photos, all of the photos and the way that you put them together. It is a very, it's an unknown compelling force. And I've got to tell you that this is a very compelling documentary. And I do recommend everybody really go find this out if you've been reading, because there's been, as I said, a number of different articles, because I've read several of them recently. And it seems like there's a renewed interest in this, even more of a renewed interest in this story 62 years later. But uh, please go find an unknown compelling force. And Liam, where can they go watch this movie? Absolutely. It's available now on Apple TV and Amazon on all the good video on demand places. And uh, yeah, check it out. And and please leave a review if you enjoyed it. Um, It it helps the film and I'd love to know what you think. Definitely. Definitely. Liam, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a pleasure. And you're a great guest because you have so much, a wealth of information and that always makes my job much easier. So thank you. Fantastic. Thank you. You're welcome. Well, if you would like to listen to any of the past uh, Jam Price shows all about movies, they are all archived on thejampriceshow.com. You can also listen on the iHeart Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube, Smart TV. We're everywhere, actually. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Jam Price Show. Thank you for listening. Jam Price talks to the movers and shakers in the film business. The Jam Price Show, all about movies.